Today is April 5th, 2021, and later this evening on PBS is going to be the first of three parts of Ken Burns' new documentary about Ernest Hemingway. And I dropped off the kids at school this morning and listened to a little bit of an interview on NPR with Ken Burns talking about the experience of delving into the life of Hemingway, learning about his craft, his insecurities, his ups, his downs. And well, maybe some of you don't know, but I am an absolutely ravenous reader of Hemingway. He's my favorite writer. And in fact, I'll give you a little backstory And it'll all make sense why I want to talk about this for a few minutes as we delve into uh, both the style of writing that was Hemingway's, what it means in my own kind of thought processes as I think about how to talk about Jesus, and finally, what I would dream for you as it pertains not to writing, but to the heavenly imagination we've been given in the Holy Spirit. So hopefully that sounds convoluted enough, but here's a little bit about my backstory. In in high school, I absolutely loved literature, and I I loved my particular uh, literature teacher, Mrs. Gray. I loved being in her class, and I loved when we got to talk about Hemingway. And it was somewhere in there, probably junior year, I was reading in Hemingway, and I came across the name Hadley, which was the name of Hemingway's first wife, the wife that he married in the Midwest, and then they moved to Paris. and, And I thought then, if I ever have a daughter... I'd love for her to be named Hadley. Well, here we are with a 13-year-old daughter named Hadley. Next part of my Hemingway passion, I actually finished college a semester early. And so I had a part-time job. I was volunteering heavily with Young Life. And so for a series of months before I started my full-time first job, I really had a lot of time on my hands. So I would get up in the morning, I would do my part-time job, I would go hang out at the high school with the high school kids, and then I would often spend the rest of the day just reading, just thinking, just taking walks, just enjoying the freedom of having finished college a little early and getting to enjoy a little bit of space before diving into the working world. Well, I read almost all of Hemingway that spring and into the summer, and I would find myself so completely transported by his style, by the poetical cadences of his words, by its spareness that he's known for, but specifically the places, the sort of the scene setting he would do. I, I was so overwhelmed by it that I can't even still today talk about it sensibly with clarity. Well, then, of course, some of you know this. Jenny and I, uh, before we moved to Colorado, we spent a season in Paris. And that was because of Hemingway yet again, because his famous early days of learning to try to write were in Paris. And so Jenny and I got a little apartment in Paris, and I would write in the mornings, and we would spend time together all day and... Often we would go to different places from the life of Hadley and Ernest Hemingway, and it was just a lovely experience and kind of sojourn before we began having kids, uh, doing the work that we now do here in Colorado Springs. All that to say, a lot of Hemingway history in my life. And so, yes, it's meaningful that there's a Ken Burns documentary coming out, but why the heck am I talking about this? Well, it's because in my 20s, I really then started paying attention to why does Hemingway's prose grab me as it does? And why does his description of this scene hit me more strongly, more right to the heart than a similar description by, say, a Thomas Wolfe or a Thomas Mann or even at times Fitzgerald? Why Hemingway? And I was probably about 26, 27 years old, and I started writing down in my writing journal about what I now still describe as the literary theory of the forms. And if you know anything about Plato, the philosopher, 
he had this idea that he kept popping into his writings about the forms. This idea that we are born with certain essences in our minds that could be sort of heavenly or just beyond the, the scene that is the essence of what things are. It's, it's beyond our human knowledge. It's already ingrained in us when we come into this world. And so the literary theory of the forms to me is that if you are able to call up in the reader or the listener's imagination something as smoothly and swiftly as possible, and if you allow their imagination to then populate what that looks like, you've already done everything you need to do. You don't have to over-describe. You don't have to tell them about the exact substance or color. You don't have to give them every single detail. I'll give you three examples. If I simply say to you, they walked the pebbly seashore, well, now I'm allowing your brain to form what that seashore looks like. If it's a, a north-south coast, a west-east uh, coast, uh, I'm allowing you, with the words pebbly and seashore, to populate it in your own imagination. Uh, a second one, a phrase like this, the toss of the leaves. It's a poetical sounding phrase, but you're imagining your tree, your branches, your leaves, and so now the toss of the leaves is telling you that there's breeze blowing through these branches, and yet you're going to decide what it looks like. You're going to decide the sound of it. Third one, the moonlight on the dark waters. We've all seen moonlight on dark waters. I don't need to tell you exactly what that stretch of coast looks like, whether it's a lake or the sea. When I say the moonlight on the dark waters, your imagination begins to populate it. You see it for yourself. It now lives inside you. And so from Hemingway to the literary theory of the forms, for me in my 20s and in my 30s, in speaking of Jesus at Young Life, at church, what I began to notice was that if I could drop these sorts of phrases, these almost Hemingwayian descriptions into my talks, people started to have more of an emotional connection to Jesus. Because they were starting to imagine these scenes and settings in the four gospels for themselves. They were there. No longer were they words on the page. Now it was as if they were on the pebbly seashore, experiencing the toss of the leaves and seeing the moonlight on the dark waters before the storm that Jesus then had to calm. Do you see what I mean? And so I would experiment. I would try different ways of having people's imagination in play so that the spareness of sort of, again, a, a Hemingway-style narration would have like a 15-year-old kid locked in or a 55-year-old at church listening like they'd never listened before. It's been the joy of my life to experience, experiment with this. And so I'll tell you, I was with a good friend last week and we were reminiscing about an old friend that has passed away. And this man, Cliff Anderson, one of the most wonderful followers of Jesus I've ever known. One time I was speaking somewhere and he was in the back of the room and I was experimenting. I was trying this same sort of thing, this literary theory of the forms that I kind of learned from Ernest Hemingway. And I was describing Luke 5, the, the calling of uh, Peter on the water. And when I finished giving it in that first hand, it's sort of like lightly described and yet I had choice phrases in there. When I finished and walked to the back of the room, Cliff said to me, Whatever that was that you just did, you have to keep doing it. Keep trying that. I don't think I've ever heard anything quite like it. Which is one of the greatest compliments I've ever received in my life, and I will never forget it. So thank you, Jesus, for Cliff Anderson.
So why am I talking about Hemingway, the theory of the forms, my experimentation, Cliff's amazing compliment? Why am I talking about all this? It's because in thinking of Hemingway and in thinking of that gift that the Lord has given us human beings, especially those with redeemed spirits and minds, the idea of imagination always sticks with me. So I want to share with you two quotations from the absolutely lovely writer, A.W. Tozer. I'm sure many of you have read some Tozer. And this is from his lesser read book called Born After Midnight. So the first one is, as you'll hear, kind of a negative thought around the Pharisees and their lack of imagination. And then the second one is around what the Lord is perhaps trying to call up in us. So here we go. Quote number one. The weakness of the Pharisee in days of old was his lack of imagination, or what amounted to the same thing, his refusal to let it enter the field of religion. He saw the text with its carefully guarded theological definition, and he saw nothing beyond. When Christ came with his blazing spiritual penetration and his fine moral sensitivity, he appeared to the Pharisee to be a devotee of another kind of religion, which indeed he was if the world had only understood. He could see the soul of the text while the Pharisee could only see the body. And they could always prove Christ wrong by an appeal to the letter of the law or to an interpretation hallowed by tradition. The breach between them was too great to permit them to coexist. So the Pharisee, who was in a position to do it, had the young seer put to death. So friends, what we see in the Pharisees, what we often read in the four gospels and kind of get our hair up about those Pharisees is the truth of the fact that they would look at the text with all of its theological definitions and implications and see literally nothing beyond it. They would guard the printed page at the expense of actually reaching into the heart of their fellow man, of extending the realm of the kingdom of God as even they could have understood it at that point in the old covenant tradition. But then here comes Jesus, himself, the word, his Holy Spirit, the spirit that can actually empower the imagination. And to them, it seemed like he was a devotee of another kind of religion. It was something not what they were doing. And why? Because he could see the soul of the text. Friends, did you realize... Jesus was the soul of the text. He is the soul of the text. And so at the beginning there, that lack of imagination, now I want you to hear Tozer talking about what he desires for the body today, for us. Listen. A purified and spirit-controlled imagination is, however, quite another thing. And it is this I have in mind here. I long to see the imagination released from its prison and given to its proper place among the sons of the new creation. What I am trying to describe here is the sacred gift of seeing, the ability to peer beyond the veil and gaze with astonished wonder upon the beauties and mysteries of things holy and eternal. One of my goals in my life, yes, as sort of a disciple of Hemingway's writing, with my uh, sort of funny literary theory of the forms and my experimentation about how to grab the imagination of my listeners, one of my lifetime goals is that the church would have a purified and spirit-controlled imagination. 
that whether they're sitting in the pew or at their coffee table in the early morning with a cup of coffee and the scriptures open in front of them, would be that their imagination is released from its prison, that they don't think, I cannot interpret this through the lens of how I see it in my brain by the Holy Spirit, because I want to see the imagination given its proper place among the sons and daughters of the new creation. Did you notice in the first quote, Tozer called Jesus the young seer? Well, that's what Tozer, that's what I want for you and for me, that we would hold the sacred gift of seeing. That when you read from Luke 5, when you imagine the boats beached there, Jesus stepping over the gunwale and asking Peter to put out into the deep waters, when you imagine those nets straining with all that heavenly miraculous catch of fish, that you would be there. That you would hear the wind tide lapping against the boat. That you would hear the sound of Peter's kneecaps hitting the hull as he drops to his knees and says, Lord, depart from me. I'm just a sinful man. Friends, what I want for you and for me today and especially tomorrow when you wake up early to spend time with him is that your own imagination by the Holy Spirit would be able to peer beyond the veil. I love that quote. Friends, Jesus has rent the veil that used to separate things holy from things holy of holy. And he has allowed us access into the very throne room, into the presence of God. So when we read the scriptures, we may use our heavenly inspired Holy Spirit imagination to see it and thus possess it for ourselves. So I love to speak of Jesus and I love to try my best to write of Jesus in a simple Hemingwayian-like way. But you know what would make me more happy? Is if you used your imagination. If you got up every day and encountered him afresh right there between the temples in your head, that you, in your own mind, in your own spirit, so saw him that you went out and simply followed him, enjoyed him, showed the world his deep affection for it by the way that you show his affection for you and your affection for him. But... If we don't want to become the Pharisees of old, it's out of that place of moving into the soul of the text, of enjoying all that he has for us beyond just the theological definitions and into the place of his presence. So friends, whether or not you care a rip about Ernest Hemingway, the literary theory of the forms, the idea of how turns of phrase and description become real in sort of our personal and at times collective imagination, whether or not you care about any of those things, all I care about for you is that you would know Jesus and make him known. So how does that sound? Let's know him better today than we did yesterday. Let's come to trust him more today so that we're ready to go into tomorrow. And quite frankly, let's show the world that he is the most lovely, the most good, the most beautiful, the most wonderful man that has ever walked the face of the earth. Let's know him so we can prove him yet again. Thanks for listening. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.